This episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Vegas.com. When you're a writer in Los Angeles, picture yourself as a writer in Los Angeles, and, and you make a big sell. You sell a pilot. You sell a screenplay. You sell something on Craigslist, as I'm trying to do. I'm trying to sell my furniture. How are you going to celebrate? Well, you won't be going to Pasadena.com. You'll be going to Vegas.com. Vegas.com has got the best deals in Las Vegas hotels of every type to help you find the perfect room that will fit your budget. Looking for a cheap stay in a clean cubby? No problem. How about suites of epic grandeur in luxury Las Vegas resorts? Yep, they got them too. Before you make your Las Vegas hotel reservations, read hotel reviews from people who've actually stayed there, so you'll know you're making the right choice. Acrobats, divas, magicians, jokesters, showgirls, and puppets. You can see all those in Las Vegas. I also saw John Cleese and Eric Idle with my dad there. It was a great show. Uh, There are so many shows in Las Vegas that you can't possibly take them all in, but there's not a doubt you'll find something that will blow you away. Good thing Vegas.com has tickets to all of them. Booking your flight and hotel room together can help you save on the entire package. And guess what? With more than 400 airlines from 1,700 departure cities, plus world-class Vegas resorts, Vegas.com can help you create a great vacation package for the best price. Find the best deals on hotels and trips to Vegas, and listeners will save even more by going to BoardWalkAudio.com slash Vegas. That's BoardWalkAudio.com slash Vegas. This is a BoardWalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing, writing, writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and I get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Scott Ackerman from one of my favorite shows, Comedy Bang Bang. I I remember listening to the podcast version of uh, Bang Bang back when it was Death Ray in like uh, 2009, I think. Uh, I believe the first episode I listened to was with Michael Sarah on like Black Friday. I listened to it during a Thanksgiving break. I think that's when it came out. I think it was like in the 40s or 50s. Um, and that like, that was one of my formative experiences because it was, it was amazing to listen to that. And that's like, oh, that's like a new form of comedy that I didn't know existed, which then led to me learning about uh, UCB and led to me learning about so many podcasts and sketch and improv that I wouldn't have known about. And so uh, that's like one of my, you know, that's how I learned about comedy, really, is through that show. So Scott's a really important uh, comedic hero of mine, so it was a real uh, honor to get to interview him. Uh, before the show, I want to quickly thank Scott's assistant, Corinne, for quickly setting this up, and Stephen Perlstein, the head of Boardwalk Audio, for producing this one and getting us feral audio of all places to record, which is really uh, cool to go there. Uh, if you like this episode, I recommend checking out the ones we did with other Bang Bang people, uh, Joe Saunders, Caroline Anderson, and Neil Campbell. And there's another one coming out pretty soon after this one that you should check out. I won't say yet, but it's coming out. Uh, This was a real treat to do. Uh, Scott's a very nice man. He stayed for a long time, which is nice of him. And uh, I hope you like it. So here is Scott Ackerman. Uh, Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thank you, Alan. Uh, Where are you from originally? I'm from, uh, I was born in Georgia, but was not there very long mm-hmm. um, because my 
parents or my father was in the National Guard, so we would travel around a lot and be he would be stationed in different places. So pretty early on, I moved to uh, Orange County, California, mm-hmm. which uh, Cypress, California, over by Disneyland. Uh, and when you were growing up, were you like interested in comedy at all at a young age? I was I was really into comic books. Uh, I was really into like Star Wars and and okay. things like that, and then um, <clears throat> I also around when I was well, I, I wanted to be an artist. That's I, I wanted to be mainly a cartoonist or a comic book artist. Oh, so I would draw all the time, and I would write my own um, comic strips and comic books and stuff like that. So. Um, you know, I didn't really have much of a inclination to write comedy other than I was kind of into comic strips, you know, and I would have those collections of like Heathcliff or Garfield or Calvin okay. Hobbes kind of stuff. So I would read those and, and and try to write funny, you know, in quotes, things sort of of that nature um, until I got into high school. And then when I was in high school or right before I got into high school, um, I uh, had a uh, girlfriend that showed me Monty Python uh, and the Holy Grail, and I had never really heard of Monty Python, um, and it was really funny, and I got really super into it. Um, So pretty much from the age of 14 on, um, I started to get into... Monty Python and Douglas Adams, and um, then Saturday Night Live was something I wasn't allowed to watch, um, although I had, you know, sort of watched reruns of it. Um, and then when the Eddie Murphy cast was in there in like 82 through 84, I wasn't allowed to watch it, but every once in a while I could uh-huh. sneak down when everyone was asleep and check it out. So about 84, 85, mm-hmm. um, me and my best friend got really into. Um, Saturday Night Live and especially uh, Late Night with David Letterman. That was the thing that really um, became my biggest gateway into comedy. Uh, going back, you said you like wrote your own comics. Do you remember what any of those were like about and were they like comedic at all? So a little bit. I mean, they were like cute. They were like yeah. Sunday Sunday paper comics. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, comic yeah. strips. Like you know what I mean? circus type stuff? Or the less... It was... I mean... <laughs> It, it was like Garfield yeah. kind of stuff. You know, I had a character that I created uh, called Irving that I, that I would draw, and then he would get into situations. Okay. <laughs> I don't even remember what they were, but um, I would draw them and, you know, color them, and, and uh, that was sort of success to me at the time was like, oh, wow, if I could have a, a daily strip – um, right. Sort of like peanut. It was like peanuts. You know what I mean. Uh-huh. It was kind of like that. If I, that that was kind of where I was at at ten through twelve years old of mm-hmm. like really wanting to do that. Do you think like you're? I know you've you've written comics since then, like mm-hmm. actual like uh, like Marvel stuff, like superhero stuff. Do you think that has like an influence in your work at all? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there there's a lot of um, sort of the imagination of comics that I try to bring to uh, my work. Um, the Tenacious D script um, that I wrote for their movie was like full on based on like Jack Kirby 
um, Submariner type stuff. Um, And then Comedy Bang Bang, the TV show, had a ton of comic book kind of uh, influences. Um, There was one particular or two episodes, actually, because we did a sequel to it. But the time travel episode, there was um, uh, a lot of the visuals were of the time travel itself were based on the Alan Moore Supreme comics where there would be like a time tunnel and you would see the years flashing by. Right. Oh, interesting. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I was, uh, and I still read them. And so I'll be able to mm-hmm. kind of pull out like story stories of the drop of hat and be like, Oh, it's kind of like this story and be able to tell it, you know, I was, mm-hmm. uh, with, with I, this, uh, project that I'm producing, the other day, I was just like, hey, this kind of reminds me of Like a Velvet Glove, Cast an Iron by Daniel Klaus. And and he, uh, the writer of it, was a big fan of that. And so we talked about that for a while and, and how it was applicable. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, stuff that, that I grew up reading and that I still continue to read that has uh, a direct influence on mm-hmm. what I do. And, and were you, did you start doing any, like, uh, comedy performance stuff in high school at all? I did a little. I was on the speech uh, team. Uh, I was in, first I got into uh, high school drama and um, did plays and musicals and stuff like that. And then um, I was recruited to be in the speech uh, club and the speech team and do speech competitions and those I became kind of really good at doing what they call humorous interpretation I don't know if that's still a category but at the time yeah there was dramatic interpretation where you would take uh, a a previously published work Mm -hmm. um, be it a play which is what usually people did or a book uh, and interpret it um, meaning you know just do whatever speech so when I was in speech, I would do humorous interpretation, which um, while everyone was doing dramatic interpretation, which was, um, you know, scenes from Night Mother, you know, and, yeah. and uh, really super dramatic monologues. And everyone was really Southern. They were they would always put on a Southern accent and be like, not mother, mother, you, you got to wake up. It's day, mother, not night, mother. Um, the titular line. Right. I was doing. Humorous Interp, which was I was taking um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, the radio scripts, or I was doing um, the Monty Python and the Holy Grail script, uh, and I was doing all the voices, um, and so I was was getting pretty good at that, and speech was somewhere where I was like, oh, wow, I I became actually kind of popular there. I was never really popular in school. Um, but then I would go to these speech competitions and do really well. And then, um, I was kind of popular. So it was something that I really liked doing. And then I started doing, uh, what they would call, uh, original prose poetry, which, uh, was basically you would just write your own speech instead of adapting it from something else. Um, and I did really well with that. I wrote a, um sort of fake dramatic speech. It was a parody of all of the dramatic speeches that I had been seeing for a couple of years. And it was called Dramatic Speech. Um, (laughs) And it started with my friend and I discussing how I didn't have a speech to perform the next day. Because I think, I literally think I wrote it the day before I was <laughs> supposed to do it. But it, it, it talked about, me and my friend kind of like talking about how I didn't have a speech to do. And my friend says, well, why don't you just do a really dramatic speech? 
Um, and I said, what do you mean? He goes, you know, just, uh, you know, think about the worst things that have ever happened in your life and do it with a southern accent. <laughs> um, and then I did a... Then I then I went into a southern accent and did a, a, a just a parody of all of these dramatic speeches, and it ended up I ended up going to state and and getting third place in state and all this kind of oh, stuff. Wow. So so that was where I was I was kind of focusing a lot of my comedy uh, influences and writing right there, and then also dovetailing with that at at about um, sixteen or seventeen. My friend recruited me to be on his uh, public access show, and um, he was the he, he was uh, a really kind of serious guy, and he wanted to be. Um, he ended up being a lawyer, but I think he wanted to be a politician. He was he was mm. in debate. He was you know he would do like serious debate. Um, and so he was a very kind of serious newscastery type presence on the show, um, reporting on things. It was called Centurion Highlights, and it was about our high school. Um, so he would report on things that had happened in the high school. Um, but then I came along and started doing like Letterman-esque uh, field pieces. So the first one I did, they handed me an article that was the history of how the town that we were in, Cyprus, got its name. Um, and it went through all the sort of um, iterations of the town's name and why it was called that. And so I did a very, like, comedy take on that. Um, very serious faux letterman, sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then little by little, my friend and I started kind of doing the show together. And and we became kind of co-hosts. And he sort of loosened up. And it became just <laughs> like a comedy show in a way. To, and then... You know, he would drop out occasionally or be too busy to do an episode, and I would do it solo, and I would just do a bald-faced Letterman impression the whole time. Uh, Just pure sarcasm, uh, doing a top-five list, uh, you know. And and so that was kind of where I was at in high school, was just uh, feeding my comedy love, especially of Letterman, um, through those two things, Mm -hmm. speech and the public access show. You mentioned uh, Letterman a lot, and then you mentioned the Telegaxis talk show. Were those kind of like, have you always been kind of uh, a fan of like the talk show format, and then that's kind of why you wanted to later use it? I, you know, I, I've been thinking about this recently uh, of do I like talk shows or do I... Hate them? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I liked the talk show format only because I liked the comedy on Letterman. Right. I liked him. And his sarcasm and his point of view. And then I liked all of the comedy pieces and I liked how it deconstructed the talk show. So, you know, uh, as far as talk shows go, I don't watch them. Uh, I find them really super boring now. Um, I used to watch Letterman religiously from 84, 85 until... 95 maybe so for 10 years I, I don't think I missed an episode oh wow um, and now I find them really difficult to watch um, especially I did watch one the other day because I was out of town and just trying to get to sleep and I think it, I think it was Colbert and they had uh, an actor on and having been on a, these talk shows you know like 
the ser- the serious actors they get so nervous being on these yeah, because right. they're not interesting people. <laughs> you know, they're able to play interesting people. So uh, I've seen how nervous they are backstage, going like, "Oh, I have nothing to talk about. I'm going to be boring." So uh, there was like a serious actor on, and he was telling the most boring stories and. Colbert had to pretend, I mean, maybe he actually was interested, but, uh, you know, pretend that these are the most interesting stories that they'd ever heard and so charming and Mm -hmm. so fun. And I just find the whole artifice of it to be really um, pointless. (laughs) And when you really break it down, there there isn't that much comedy in talk shows anymore. And why should there be? Um, Because Letterman and Conan were the only – Conan inherited the time slot from Letterman. And so I think there was an expectation of that 1230 um, time slot was going to be packed with comedy. And so he rose to meet that because he was a comedy writer and a brilliant one. But since both of those shows have gone away, there isn't a lot of comedy on talk shows. And really, those were the only two ones that ever had groundbreaking comedy on it. You know, So when people say, do you miss... The fact that there isn't comedy on talk shows anymore, mm-hmm. yeah, but that's not really where to go get it anymore. I mean, there's a million places you can get comedy now, um, Adult Swim and, and Comedy Central, you know, all of cable, Netflix. So I don't really miss it, and um, I don't really watch talk shows, and I don't, I, I don't think that uh, I ever liked them as a whole. I just like that one. The, the talk shows just in general seem like such a grind, and it's like so hard. I remember, I think there's like a Louie episode with like uh, when Leno like talks to him about doing the talk show, right? And he says like it's really hard to be funny every day, which is like, of course, yeah. I just you just don't really cut them that slap, really. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. yeah. Do, doing something four or five days a week is definitely a grind. Um, I think. Th- the the problem is being funny in this construct that right. they've created. Okay. Yeah, it probably is pretty hard to be funny when you're you also have a responsibility to pretend to be interested in what you know. Uh, I'm trying to think of like a f-list celebrity but wendy o williams is that someone or is that the plasmatics singer well, wendy, wendy williams wendy williams yeah, wendy yeah, williams. yeah. yeah. okay uh you know yeah if you have to sit there and and feed her questions to set up her prepackaged stories right. yeah that it's really hard to be funny conan does a, a really good job of it because i think he doesn't really care in a way about what they're saying and he's just interested in him being funny which mm-hmm. is kind of a style it's sort of how i do the podcast in a way when i'm doing the serious interview which is uh exhausting in itself but but oh yeah um a little bit you know because sometimes i would rather just have a like a regular conversation with someone with Mm -hmm. jokes you know but i'm doing like a a parody of an interview in a way Mm -hmm. but but um Conan does a good job with it, but I can't imagine having to sit there and feed. I would just rather have a conversation, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I think that's apparently what Craig Ferguson did. I didn't really ever watch that show, yeah. but he, he didn't have any notes. He would just talk to people. Mm-hmm. I think that's so much more interesting than, you know, the talk shows I've been on. They You have to go through, like, three interviews to really focus on what they think is going to be the best 
thing for your four minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's bizarre. I, you know, I, I don't know, but I, I'm I'm also a performer and I'm used to talking, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's it's not really challenging for me, you know, uh, to to fill up four minutes. But I think for actors, it probably is, and that's why they have that process. They're 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 probably the gateways in between, uh, you know, the actors out there who are going to be super super boring, you know, or even more boring than they all already are. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, um, I think it probably is a very difficult job to do, and the people with whom I've spoken that have done it, even on a limited basis, um, say it's very boring and um, <laughs> they do not enjoy it. Oh wow, it's, it's that's interesting because you're kind of a lot of the stuff you've done in your career, like from the podcast to the TV show of Connie Bang Bang, is like a talk show with like a like the parody twist. So I like subverting the form. So it's interesting to hear that you don't really like it because it almost feels like you. I was from what I when I was when I watched the show and listened to the podcast. It seems like you're you love the form. And that's what I always thought is that you love the format, and then you're just like doing the kind of like a little twist as like a homage to. I mean, it. I'm definitely doing with, with comedy bang bang. I wanted to do what I would do if I had a talk show. Mm-hmm. With the one caveat of I knew it was going to be weekly, right. and I knew that. I wanted people to watch it years after I made it. Um, I think if I were doing a daily talk show that was kind of ephemeral and disposable, like most talk shows are, I would do something. Uh, I would I would have comedy on it, but I wouldn't put so much work into every episode. You you can't when you're doing it at that uh, volume. But it it truly was the opportunity. To say, okay, I'm never going to have a talk show again, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just do what I would do. Um, I think the first season especially is, is like, that's purely uh, before we sort of, the network told us we had to have uh, narrative structure on the show, which was the best thing to happen to the show. But it, it purely was just kind of freeform comedy, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um but it also – I think if I were doing a regular talk show, um, I wouldn't be able to have as much comedy in every episode um, because you just can't write uh, at that level when you're having to do so many episodes. When you're having to do five hours a week mm-hmm. instead of a half hour, it's very difficult to, to write that much. Um, so it, it, it really was – I had always wanted to have a talk show, and, and after I came out of it on the other side, I, I realized, oh, I think I always wanted to have a comedy show. Mm. <laughs> I didn't necessarily okay. want to have a talk show. Yeah. Even though I do enjoy – you know, I enjoy doing the podcast. I enjoy doing the interviews. Um, and, and I actually think I would be interested in doing a serious interview talk show. Uh, not serious meaning no jokes ever, but – just not having to have the ironic mm-hmm. air that we have on the podcast, you know, like mm-hmm. like when I had um, Edgar Wright on recently, I'd seen Baby Driver twice already, uh, and I literally just want to talk to him about the movie, but and I can and I can do that a little bit on Comedy Bang Bang, but there's an expectation when people listen to it that, oh, wow, this is going to be a comedy podcast and don't get too boring. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. Don't make it total w- WTF where, like, I'm sitting there listening to an actual interview for an hour. So um, I, I sometimes think it would be cool to just talk to people, 
But when you look at modern talk shows and what they have to do in order to stay on the air, I don't think I'm really interested in that. Mm, interesting. Uh, so after high school, uh, you were kind of more into acting, right, than just straight comedy. Yeah, I was. Um, I I became really good at um, singing. When okay. I was in high school, um, and I, I was in a lot of musicals, um, I competed in, like, opera competitions and stuff. So um, I kind of I, – I think when you're young, you go to what, you're, what people give you um, affirmation for and say, hey, you're good at this, you know, and you go, oh, okay, well, maybe I could get into the industry in that way. Um, and that was sort of how I kind of bounced around through my career of like, hey, you're really funny at speech. Okay, well, I'll go do speech. And I, I took it to uh, as high a level as I could. Um, hey, you're really good at singing. Okay, well, um, after I graduate high school, I'll go do a whole bunch of musicals and then end up going to a theater school. Because um, maybe, maybe I'm good at that and that's what will get me success. And then... At a certain point, um, when I was in college, it was like, hey, you're really good at writing. Um, and so, okay, well, I'll write plays. And I wrote plays for a while. And then um, when I was 25, someone said, hey, you know, you're really funny. You should try comedy. And so I tried that. And people were like, wow, you're really good at that. And that's the one that kind of stuck mm. um, because that's the one that after – after sort of like realizing I didn't like musicals uh, or the life of a regional theater actor and after not getting anywhere with my writing, um, comedy is the one that kind of within a shorter period of time I was able to get that affirmation of people saying you're really good, you're really good and then actually get, get actual professional work from it. So it's, it sounds like you're just kind of following just the affirmation rather than necessarily like a passion for a little bit. Well, I mean, I de look, I love all of the things, but mm -hmm. you can't I, – I never wanted to be one of those people who was like, I'm passionate – I'm so passionate about this, I'm going to waste my life doing this one thing mm -hmm. that is never going to get me any professional work, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I really took a look at musicals and I was like, do I have what it takes to be – a true Broadway actor and I had a really good voice and I was an okay actor um, but I couldn't dance at all and I was just like you know I, I'm, I'm at the level where I'm getting job offers to at this level which at the time the level was regional theater which is pretty much you, you go somewhere for three months you rehearse for a month and then you do a show for you know eight shows a week for two months but you have to end up moving around the country every three months. And right. it was really – it was kind of hell on um, my relationships. I was dating someone and she moved to Milwaukee. And meanwhile, I was in California doing regional theater. And then I moved to Milwaukee to be with her. But then I had to work in Indiana and commute. And and I, I really took a look at that that life and I was like, I don't think this is the lifestyle for me as much as I – I'm passionate about doing musicals and really love acting. I just don't think this is it. So I, I made a conscious decision to move back to California, move back to um, L.A. and um, just try to focus on getting into the industry in that way. And now at the, that's the thing. At the same time, I had a ton of passions. I love movies. 
I love comedy. Um, so when I came back, I was like, okay, well, I've also written dramatic plays. Uh, and people say I'm really good at that, so I'm going to try to write these scripts. And at the time, it was um, I got really interested in writing um, a pilot. Uh, I wrote this like one hour kind of comedic drama pilot um, with my partner um, that was sort of at the time like Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place were popular. And it was sort of structured like that, but a little bit funnier. Um, kind of where the OC ended up being, you know? Okay. <laughs> That's if you look at the OC, yeah. like it had a lot of comedy in it, but mm-hmm. it was structured like a drama, you know? So that's where I was really taking my shots and going, okay, I think I can break in this way. And I really love writing. Um, but no one, you know, people responded to it. They thought it was okay, but I couldn't see like a clear path to getting it made. Um, at all, although you know, I had some friend. I had a director friend who wanted to shoot it, and I had a uh, guy who uh, a friend who was interested in line producing who broke down a budget, and it was just like way too much money mm-hmm. um, for me to just finance. You know, I was living paycheck to paycheck, so it was really something that I was like, okay, I really like this, but I don't see how I'm ever going to break in. And that's when my friend who read it said to me. Um, you know, I I don't like your script. <laughs> she didn't like it at all. Uh, she was someone with whom I'd done um, musical theater in the past who also had moved to L.A. and was trying to break into the industry. Um, and she said, you know, I don't really like your script, but um, you're so funny just naturally. I, I wish, you know, have you ever thought of doing comedy? Um, and I had done it once when I was 18. I, I had done stand-up um, in a competition uh, that would um, I think I feel like it was Bud Light or something. They <laughs> they would travel to colleges and ha- and hold these stand up competitions, and then if you won, you could do five minutes or seven minutes to open for this tour that they were bringing yeah. around. And so I wrote material, and I uh, it was all very observational because like Jerry Seinfeld was um, this is 1988, so Jerry Seinfeld was. Um, was my favorite comedian. So it was all very much like, yeah, have you ever noticed this thing? Or, right. boy, this is weird. Or, um, And I did pretty well. I think I, I got, like, second or third place, um, but I didn't win. And so I was like, huh, maybe that's not the thing for me. If I had one, maybe I w- would have kept trying to do it or something. Mm-hmm. But I was like, huh, maybe I'm not that good at it. But my friend said, okay, have you ever thought of doing stand-up or doing comedy? Um and she had a friend who uh, was willing to put me up uh, at the comedy store where oh, um, wow. where she had a weekly show. Um, and so I decided to take a shot at it. Um, that friend turned out to be Mary Lynn Rice Cub. Oh, okay. Um, who her and CJ Arabia hosted a show called Windows 95. This is 1995. And they kept the title of the show Windows 95 for years. <laughs> but um, sh- they were very nicely willing to give a shot to a couple of people. It was me and my partner who had never done comedy before just based on a recommendation from their friend. And this is a show, by the way, that has like Janine Garofalo on it and David Cross and Bob Odenkirk and they're all and Paul F. Tompkins. And they're all doing this show on a regular basis. And they were so nice to just say, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, have them come down and do a bit. Wow. And 
it could have been disastrous, but it it turned out really, really well where um, that first bit, it just kind of destroyed. And they were really impressed. And they said, well, whenever you want to do it again, you know, and we said, how about two weeks from now? <laughs> and they said, OK. And then I just kind of became a comedian in mm-hmm. a way because people really liked it. And I love doing comedy, but. But when you say, like, you know, did I have a passion for it? I had a, a real passion for comedy, but I also didn't think anyone would like the comedy that I was doing. Interesting. Because the comedy that, that was really interesting to me was um, it was kind of a little more surreal and it was sort of harsh in a way. And it was what my friends later after I got into the business, uh, my friend would call kind of house comedy, which is like funny around the house, but oh, okay. <laughs> but don't like don't do it on stage. <laughs> um, but but that was kind of what I was really interested in. And I thought, eh, no one this is this is not like real comedy. It was after I got invited to do it that while I was trying to think about what I would do, that two things happened that week um i saw a an nbc special on andy kaufman and i had known who he was and i saw taxi growing up but i didn't really know anything about him as a comedian and that blew my mind because that was like stuff that i was interested in doing and i saw someone actually doing it and then number two was i went to go see bob odenkirk and david cross do a live show they were doing um, about an hour of sketches um, in order to get uh, HBO interested in in uh, buying Mr. Show. So I saw that, and they were doing stuff that was kind of what I what we later would call house comedy in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I was like, oh, that's too dangerous, or, or uh, people wouldn't laugh at that, mm-hmm. right? And they were doing it, and those two things made me go, oh. Maybe there is a, a space in comedy for me because those guys are doing it. So that first um, that first performance was a cross between those two things, was a, a cross between an Andy Kaufman, like, breaking down, uh, breaking the fourth wall kind of thing, which is, you know, I, I mentioned before that speech that I did back in the day of, like, you know, just showing the artifice of like, hey, I'm doing a fake speech right now. Mm-hmm. Like that was something that I had been interested in, in high school. Um, so it was a cross between that and a, sort of a Bob and David bit. Um, and yeah, and it did really well. And, and that's how I just sort of after that, after maybe the second performance and that one went really well. Um, and that was the one where Bob Odenkirk was in the back. He had just performed and he... Um, said to my partner and I like hey, you guys are really funny maybe you should maybe you should write on my show um, uh. and I was like oh the show that made me want to do comedy okay sure wow <laughs> um, but after that I I just was able I think to call myself a comic I was like mm-hmm. just I when I was working as as a waiter at the time and people would say well what do you you know what are you here in LA for I'm like oh I'm a comic and they would go oh cool um, whereas before, if I would say I was interested in comedy, they'd go, huh, yeah, you're not funny. But after I said I was a comic, they would go, oh, yeah, you are funny, you know, because it legitimized <laughs> right. me. And they're, uh, they go, where do you perform? I go, the comedy store. They go, oh, wow, well, okay, great. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I guess you're funny then. Um, 
so yeah, that that just changed my life, and it became the avenue uh, where I could see a clear path to actually doing something. Now, luckily, I, I love it. It's not like, you know, it's not this fake thing where I'm like I was I was talking to an actor once who was on Comedy Bang Bang, and he was like the biggest asshole we ever had on the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, he was so terrible. And, um, but, you know, I'm stuck there all day with him because he was there for six hours oh, doing a part. Oh, on the actual show. On the actual oh, TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, not only terrible actor, but um, a terrible person. <laughs> and, oh, wow. And, so you thought he was a terrible actor before? No. He's... Oh. When you see him in something, you will think he's a good actor, which is why we gave him a straight offer for the part. But when we cast him, we did not realize he could not memorize lines nor read them oh. off cue cards. Wow. Um, but speaking of that guy, I'm just like exa- exasperated by him after he's already snapped at me and the entire crew all day. But I have to be, you know, hang out with him. And so I'm like, so why did you get into acting? <laughs> and he goes... You know, I took a look at the highest paying professions, and that was one of them. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And wow. And that really – I, it, everything clicked in my head at that point. I went, oh, I see what's <laughs> happening here. You hate this. Yeah. Like he was, the, he was the kind of guy who after an hour kind of thought that he had, should be done. And was like, come on, guys, let's get it going. Let, you know, I was like, no, this is like, I can't understand how this guy has been in huge films. But uh, he was, you know, like, you know how this works. Mm-hmm. You are here for a number of hours, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. But he was there for the paycheck, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's not like that for me where I was like craving about it of like, oh, can't do musicals? All right, well, where else could I hit, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, or I was talking to one guy once um, who was saying that I'm trying to see how much of this story I can tell without saying who it is or <laughs> give you any kind of clue. But he was he was sort of saying that he was an improviser and um, but he realized with the connections he had in Hollywood that he would do better if he was a stand up. So he was doing that I now. See. And I was like in my head, kind of going, "Well, don't do you like it? You know, because stand up is so hard. You have to love it. Well, it's so different too from improv. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's not. It's not like sometimes I'll hear about that about the people who do improv, going, oh, I think I'm going to try stand up.' And in my head, I go, "Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they're very different, and you have to really fucking love stand up to do it." Um. And that was something when I was doing solo stand-up, I realized that I didn't love it as much as I should have. I, I kind of felt like I was a being a – I felt like I was disrespecting the art form mm-hmm. to be as as just middling okay as I was at it <laughs> and to be like, oh, God, this is a lot of work doing it every single night. Um and so I felt like, you know what, I should not be doing this because I, because of where I was at the time of, like, people would put me on shows because I had been on Mr. Show and stuff. I was like, this is just disrespectful to stand up. Like, I'm not – I'm okay, but I'm, I'm – I should just stop. So I, I just stopped doing that. But I, So it was never like that kind of craven thing of, like mm-hmm. – 
oh, comedy. Comedy is something I can exploit. Or, or someone who looks at the UCB theater and goes, boy, a lot of people are, are being cast from that. I'm going to take improv, and right. that'll be a way to get into the industry, you know? Like, I'm a person who loves comedy. Um, I have loved comedy ever since, you know, I was in high school. So, And I know a lot about comedy and, and have watched everything. <laughs> so I'm, I'm definitely not like... Someone who's not following my passions. I just had like eight of right, them. Right, right. <laughs> what was uh, your material like when you were doing stand up? Was, was it still like observational or by then was it kind of uh, more, it was a different? Well, the, the bits that I was doing when I first started were um, these bits with um, my partner and they were, uh, they were really influenced by uh, like Martin and Lewis. Um, but Martin and Lewis, if they, if, like terrible shit happened to them and they shit their pants on stage. You know? <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, one of them, one was, uh, we were a fake improv group and we were mm-hmm. called the Fun Bunch and it was ironic on two levels. One was there was only two of us and we were always talking about how the other people in our group couldn't make it and it was just the two <laughs> yeah. of us. Uh, but also we were not fun at all. Like we came up like supposedly doing improv and then terrible things would happen. I remember one of them was uh, I was trying stand up for the first time and I was do I was doing these like really bad observational jokes um, and really confidently. And then they would get no response. and I go, fuck, fuck, I can't do it. I can't do it. And my partner would be like, no, no, no you're great. You're great. And then um, one ended up I ended up saying something really offensive and that would get like a laugh mm-hmm. when people realized what the bit was and I would be like this is going really good my friend's like no abort you have to stop and then um, I got so offensive that he said uh, he decided to punish me he said uh, you know you're going to use your mouth as a potty I'm going to use your mouth as a potty and then um, he peed in my mouth <laughs> Okay, <laughs> like fake yeah, but yeah. Uh, he had like a, a, a water balloon mm-hmm. in his pants and then <laughs> would pee all over me so it was stuff like that you know it was very like uh, pushing the boundaries in the in the same way that you know I kind of thought Mr. Show was doing I think Mr. Show was way more was probably uh trying to say something when they would do stuff like that more so than we were. Um, so that was what it was um, with those fun bunch bits. And I, I did those off and on for 10 years or so. Um, and then when I was just doing like regular standup, I, di- I didn't have the confidence, I think, to just kind of get up and talk, which I think a good stand-up should do. Like, I, f- I feel like I would plan my bits out way more in advance than I should have. Instead of having a funny idea and then going, oh, let me explore that on stage, I would, like, sort of write it out in my mind and I would go over it and not leave myself the, r- the room to improv on it and expand it uh, in the moment of just something I would think of. Um, and so that that really hampered... Um, my comedy, my stand-up at the time where I was just hitting a wall where like a bit would go, you know, a minute and a half and then I would run out of tags that I had written and then it would be like, okay, what else, you know? And I, I also wasn't talking about things that were kind of that important. It was all like dumb shit in a way, you know? Uh, 
so were I to do stand up again, I would probably just like think of a funny idea and riff on it in the moment and then tape myself, figure out what was working and then come back to it. And that's what that's what I ended up doing on the Comedy Bang Bang tours. Um, the first couple that we did, I had um, written bits, but I would never write them out. I would always just uh, have an outline in my head. And that's where I really was like, oh, this is – if I were to do stand-up again, this is really where it should be is like have an idea in your head, uh, have have a destination probably – a couple of jokes maybe written out, but just be in the moment. And that mm-hmm. was I was never in the moment really as a stand-up where I would be able to react to a reaction or um, riff if something wasn't going well. If something didn't go well, I would be like just kind of shutting down going, okay, well. <laughs> um, so I think, I think if I were to do it again, it would be vastly different than what it was when I was doing it around the turn of the century or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Bob Odenkirk sees you guys do uh, do the fun bunch, mm-hmm. and he like he likes it. So then uh, you 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 don't you started acting on Mister Show before you started writing, right? Yeah, it basically it, uh, around the second time that uh, that I performed that Bob was there and introduced himself. I, I had met him a little bit before. I actually had met him at a party that my friend Maleva, who got me into comedy, uh, invited me to. And he was like, oh, you're a writer. Bob's always very interested in in other people or other artists who he doesn't uh, – he, he doesn't go to parties to, like, go network or go talk mm-hmm. to people, you know – it's it's very interesting now knowing him the way I do. I, I, I'm imagining that party of him being uncomfortable talking to the people he already knows. <laughs> so looking for someone he doesn't know, yeah. you know, so he can just have a facile conversation with him. But he was like, oh, you're a writer? Oh, cool. I'm a writer. I was like, oh, great. I didn't really know who he was. I hadn't. I had watched the Ben Stiller show, but didn't put it together who he was. I was like, oh, cool. He's like, yeah, come see my show. And gave me a flyer for his show with, with David. Um. But yeah, what was happening at the time was he was selling Mr. Show. And when I started doing comedy, that was right when he was selling it. And pretty much, I think that first show that I saw of his was like the last one for HBO to go, okay, this is what your pilot is going to be great. Because really quickly, I think I started doing it in the summer of 95, and I think those guys shot the first four episodes of Mr. Show in, like, October or November of 95. So that was happening at the same time that I was um, starting. Um, And so um, I I remember one of my favorite memories is I went to see uh, the first episode of Mr. Show to be in the audience and I um, had a reservation. You called a number um, to get a reservation and I showed up and I went into the line to get in and Doug Benson was in the VIP line and he shouts at me. He goes, fun bunch. (laughs) I'm like, hey, how's it going? He goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm going to see the show. He goes, no, what are you doing in that line? Get over here. You're a comic. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'm a comic? Oh, wow. (laughs) And just the – he was so nice and um, liked what we were doing and befriended me, you know. And it was like, oh, wow, this guy who's really funny uh, and is a professional. He'd been doing stand-up forever at that point. 
thinks I'm funny? Great. Okay. So so you can see me in the audience of the first season. Oh, and one, wow. the, the other thing that happened was I think the second episode that I saw, I was sitting more towards the front and Bob comes out and is like, hey, Bob and David both come out and then Bob, they're soaking up the applause and Bob sees me in the audience and goes, hey, <laughs> and points at me. Oh, wow. I was like, hey, all right. You know, he's he remembers me. Um, but Bob was very nice. He uh, really took a shine to what we were doing. Um, and so he would go, he would be in a lot of our shows. Um he would introduce some of his shows. I remember once we did a show out in Santa Monica and he was like, hey, do you want me to introduce it? And he just came and warmed up the crowd for a while, you know? Oh, wow. So he was very, very supportive. Um, and all the while, you know, watching my shows and, and and saying, hey, I like this, I don't like that. And we were in other people's shows together. So he was very supportive. And at about the... he would He would invite me to be in certain show in certain episodes of Mr. Show. The first one I did was the Jeepers Creepers, which I was so thrilled to be there and then later realized that they just were having trouble getting people to go out to the desert for a full day and dance in the hot sun. But it's, you know, me and Sarah Silverman and Jack Black and, you know, all these people. And I remember I was dancing around and they had a uh, camera just on me for some of the dancing because I was dancing really funny. And Bob came up to me afterwards and was like, oh, your dancing was so funny. That was so funny. I was like, all right, cool. Um, So all along the while, I'm hoping to to ride on the show. And I think when he asked – when he first brought it up, that was the first season, and I think they had a lot of people just, like, chiming in. Even though those two wrote every episode or credited as writers on every episode, I think they had a lot of people just, like, doing sessions with them or something. But then the second season, they had a very limited staff, and and Paul F. Tompkins and Jay Johnson, who I think had been there maybe six months um, longer than than I was, they were asked to do it. and they And that's not... It wasn't a purely, like, time thing. Those guys had been doing – Paul had been doing stand-up for a lot longer than I had. But I, I just view it as, like, they were doing sketch shows for six months before I got there and started doing sketch shows. And it was just kind of – and I think theirs were probably better. He and Jay's were probably better. But it just – that's how I viewed it as the time of, like, okay, it's not my time yet, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, those guys got slots. The tough one was the third season – when they opened it up even more and they needed more writers and they brought people who were not part of the scene in and people who had just like submitted sketches and I was like hey how come those guys are getting hired and I'm not I've been here now longer than them and that was when I realized oh it's because those guys weren't just like relying on you know my work like give me a job those guys were actively writing sketches and sending them to Bob and David and going like, here's my packet, you know, whereas I didn't have a packet or anything like that. Oh, okay. So midway through the third season, they were having a lot of trouble uh, getting material. And so at that point, they were sort of like, hey, maybe you can come over. And it didn't – it ended up not working out. But for the fourth season, I was like, okay – I'm going to write a packet. I'm going to prove I can do this. Um, And so uh, my partner and I wrote a packet, and um, the Taint sketch was in there, 
and um, the intervention sketch. Uh, he, uh, my partner, wrote that, uh, and a few other things. Um, I rem- there was one that was like not good, I think, because Bob <laughs> wrote back. He he wrote back feedback on all of them, and he he just wrote back "wild man, wild" on <laughs> on one of them. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's such a dismissive note. <laughs> not even a note, really. Um, but that was where. I was like, okay, I'm going to prove I can do the mm-hmm. show. And and then, you know, I've been on the other side of it. Those guys took a look at it and said, oh, we definitely want to do these sketches. We better hire them. Um, and so that's that's how I ended up mm-hmm. on the show, finally. Mr. Show is known for, like, having such a high success rate of sketches. Uh, why do you think that was? Well, those guys, a lot of the way the, the room was run was from what I can tell, based on a reaction to Bob having not the greatest experience working on Saturday Night Live. Um, and from what I can understand of the Saturday Night Live process, uh, it seems fairly insane to me where um, you'll pitch something one week and they'll say, sure, write it up and it'll get all the way to dress and they cut it at, at dress. Um, or people think it's funny and it for one reason or the other doesn't get on the show that week. And then they say that you can never repitch it. Right. <laughs> I, I think it's an unwritten rule maybe because I think some people still go, well, this was really funny and you like the idea. Well, let me like repitch it or rewrite it or whatever. It's it's um, from what I understand, it's not very common to get something on the air that was in contention previously. So Bob had a real problem with that because as far as he was concerned, things get better when you rewrite it. Right. So he was never satisfied to, to throw away an idea. He would if if there was a funny germ of an idea, he would sit and talk about it for an hour trying to figure out the best execution. And I I never really thought that was that kind of attention to detail or hard work would go into sketch writing. Um, I'd, I'd never experienced anything like that before. So if you would come in and say, you know, this, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, one I wrote was The Burgundy Loaf which is all about a restaurant that's so fancy it doesn't have bathrooms. Um, That was one where Brian Posehn and I were going to Brillstein Gray one day for a meeting. And, you know, I'm new to Hollywood and everything's fancy. And we walk into the building. I'm like, this place is amazing. Does it even have a shitter? And Brian thought that was really funny. He was like, hey, pitch that. I go, pitch it? What? It, all it was was a sentence. So I, I pitched it one day. I said, okay, it's a it's a place so fancy it doesn't even have a bathroom. And there's nothing to that. I didn't write a sketch or anything. A lot of people would go, well, where's it go? Or what? I don't know. I don't see it. I don't, I don't see it. I mean, you don't have anything. What are you talking about? Bob sat there and we, he goes, that's a really funny idea. Let's figure out how to do it. And we sat there for an hour and we pitched out where it could possibly go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and once you get the very germ of the sketch, which was guy goes to a restaurant on a really fancy date and is made 
has to go to the restroom and the waiter makes him go in a hole in his seat. Once you have that, like, that would be enough for the sketch. Then they started adding crazy details of, like, a chimney sweep named Frenchie yeah. who has a Cockney accent who brushes your <laughs> your butt. You know, like, that That to me was the, the pure joy of Mr. Show was sitting around with and you originally had nothing and then coming up with something out of it. But then it's not only that, you also would then write a sketch sometimes and the uh, Everest sketch is a good example of this. Jay, Something happened to Jay at a party where a guy I think it was a I think it was a drink cart maybe or maybe it had shot glasses on it. I can't re- really remember what it was but a guy at a barbecue Jay was at um, sat on a drink cart and it crashed to the floor and everything on it crashed and he felt really embarrassed and uh, picked everything back up and then absentmindedly forgot about it and sat on it again and that was one where Bob and David were like that's so funny that happened how do we turn it into a sketch right. that was constantly what they were saying it was like that's really funny how do we do it how do we do it and Jay wrote a couple of drafts of it where it literally was just that happening. Maybe it was Thimbles at the time. I can't remember. Um, and it was like, we we know this is funny. How do we do it? And then I decided to pitch on it. And I was like, you know what? I think that this could be like Norm MacDonald's um, when he's playing Charles Corral and reading um, the addresses – that all of his letters are from, and he just goes on forever and way longer than you think he's going to go. I go, I think if you extended it, like, two times maybe isn't funny. If we did it eight times, maybe it would be funny. And they were like, okay, try it. Write it up, you know. That's that's the kind of thing that they were always doing. Uh, they would never let an idea go. They would always have the full confidence saying, we think there's something really funny. Let's just do it. Now, sometimes to his detriment, there would be sketches like Date with the Queen, um, where it was an idea David had for a trick to play at a party. And we're like, we know it's funny. Let's do a sketch out of it. And it went through so many different iterations until someone was like, well, maybe it would work if it was like an old, like almost a parody of a sketch with like... Where, where it's the queen. It's not just a party that it's happening with regular guys. It's the queen. So we wrote that up and probably shouldn't have filmed it, but it was just making the cut at the time. Okay. We had enough people going like, yeah, this is funny. <laughs> that also happened on the dinner to celebrate all of us starting to work on Mr. Show. We went to Ruth's Chris, and I think I riffed in the moment like, the waiter talking about he had like accidentally spilled on someone something and I kind of riffed he was like I'm so sorry I'm so sorry of course and I was, I was like of course you're gonna pay half of the of the dry cleaning bill because it's I mean it's your fault that you bought the suit <laughs> you know it's like both of our fault and uh, and Bob was like that's really funny let's write it up and so my very first day on Mr. Show we wrote that together uh and that was one where I think it was so early in the process, everyone was being so polite that they didn't want to savage it. And they were like, yeah, this is funny. And I remember filming that one. And like the day we were filming it, I think I was talking to Dino and 
everyone on the staff realized no one liked that sketch. <laughs> and, oh, wow. and I was kind of like, I don't like it that much either. This is my first day. And, and then that was one that we, we filmed. And unfortunately with Mr. Show, you couldn't cut a sketch because, um, because of the links from sketch to sketch, right, yeah. it was impossible to do. So that was one that had such a, uh, an argument um, in post about it because I think there was a faction of people who wanted to put a timer on it that said sketch will be done in oh, no. like two minutes, you wow. know, counting down. And I'm like, and I was like, look, I don't think the sketch is good. I'm not saying this because I co-wrote it. But if you pop that on the screen, no one will be able to watch anything but that. Mm-hmm. And whereas if you just let the sketch be what it is and we cut we do internal cuts and cut as much of it as we can it'll be over and no one will ever remember it but the, to those guys it was such an atrocity that there be a just sketch that was just amusing because they had such a high level of success that it was it it caused such like two days of arguments you know but that was that was the level those guys were working at mm-hmm. was like excellence in every way and there was a three-day argument that i remember that was um to try to come up with a link out of the uh the bugged drug deal sketch that eric hoffman wrote um no a link into it from a grocery a supermarket sketch i think i think um there was a three-day pitch session on that wow Never ending, where those guys never wanted to pull out of a TV screen. And three days went by that we could have been writing anything else. And at the end of the third day, we were like, we can't come up with anything. Let's just pull out of a TV screen. (laughs) And now they watch it and no one cares. And we're we're like, why did we spend (laughs) three days on this? You know, I think that's what they wanted to take care of in the Netflix uh, episodes that they did is they were just like. Fuck links. We're not going to do them. Let's just write funny sketches. Who cares about how they go in and out? Mm-hmm. Even though that's one thing that Mr. Show became known for, it just was a, a waste of time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's why they they had such a high success rate is they were never satisfied to just take the easy way out and throw something away. When you were running your own show, did you try to take that kind of thinking to imply to that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were... Um, I don't know that I would do it to such an insane degree, but um, and luckily I had uh, Neil Campbell there running the room on a daily basis who was really good about um, trying to exploit that and that system and just going, hey, that's funny. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Um, I I feel like I would do it 75% or 80% of the way, mm-hmm. where I was a, maybe a little more uh, likely to read something and see five steps down the road of, I don't think this is going to go anywhere, <laughs> and I would cut bait, I yeah. think, a little, a little more often than those guys would. But I, I definitely am someone where I'm like... Making people do 15 drafts of yeah. stuff. Um, <laughs> Tim Kalpakis, if he would even have a – he was pretty bad at um, 
grammar or spelling sometimes. <laughs> okay. Uh, if he, w- I would make him do another draft if he <laughs> ever had a <laughs> spelling or grammar mistake. <laughs> and he would do something really funny, which was he would fix them and then write, like, draft 13, final draft on the top. <laughs> and then we'd find another one and he'd go, God damn it! <laughs> and, and have to go back and do a 14. Um but yeah, I would I would definitely push them and we would have long discussions about certain things. I mean, there 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 is never a perfect way to do a sketch. There's only the way that you think the the idea is clear enough, you're getting the point you want to go across get across. It's really funny and then also hopefully there's a another level to it that's surprising. Uh, or another element to it that's surprising. Um, but we would have long conversations about certain things like, um, for instance, I'm thinking of uh, the She's Not All That mm. sketch. That was one where it was uh, Lauren McGuire had a really funny idea to do a She's All That uh, kind of thing where instead of taking a um, – nerdy girl who you can tell is beautiful under the glasses and turning her into the prom queen uh, you find out that the guy who suggests doing that has been doing that because he's too afraid to ask out the hot girl (laughs) Um, and they go come on man you gotta you gotta ask out like you know the hottest girl in school and then he comes up with a plan to neg her and it was all a sketch about like basically like the shitty things guys can do to make to to neg someone um, and make them uh, feel bad about themselves enough that they would date you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we had long conversations about that um, and about the execution of it. And all the way down to after putting it together and editing it, um, where I would sometimes show the, the, sh- the cuts of the show to people. I remember two or three women watched that ep- that uh, sketch and said they didn't like it. And I said, well, why don't you like it? And they would say, it's sexist. And I go, well, isn't it, isn't it mm. um, like a comment on sexism? And they go, I don't, maybe, I don't know, I don't care, I don't like it. And as intellectual as you can get about that and, and like saying, well, you're wrong because it's a comment on it, the audience is not responding. And you have to do something about that, you know, because you don't want to put out something where people are like, fuck that sketch. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was about certain tweaks that we made to editing and then changing the title of it, uh, a title of the fake movie. Because Mm -hmm. originally the the title of the fake movie was um, at the end of the sketch, my character finally gets the girl wrapped around his finger enough by by insulting her to where she's like desperate for his love and he breaks up with her and he's like she's you're too clingy and the title of the movie was she's a crazy bitch okay and that was really funny to lauren and us because it was a it was another level of like why would the movie do that suddenly be in his point of view to call the movie she's a crazy bitch and we thought that was so funny and on a comedy level it's really it's funny but the minute people saw that, they were turned off by it. So we changed it to – I can't remember what we changed it to. Mm-hmm. Something a little more – oh, Ain't Too Proud to Neg, which is basically okay, yeah. like 
hey, we've just done a sketch about negging. Yeah. That's what we just did. We're okay. <laughs> like, and people liked it after that. So mm-hmm. it's it's maybe not everyone's favorite sketch, but it it really is something that, um, you know, we tried to we tried to get Lauren's idea across the best way that we could in the way that would make people laugh as much as they could. I don't know whether we were successful, but th- there were a lot of conversations about that. Do you uh, show sketches to people a lot if you're unsure about them? Yeah, you know, I I really like doing that. The The trick is to get a, an audience that doesn't have any preconceived notions. The, the, what sometimes we would do on Bang Bang is I would have the writers um, come in and watch cuts and... That's it's a little hard because they've all been there in the trenches. They don't have a they're not true blank slates. They know what's coming. They're looking at it from more of a well, maybe if you cut this, you know, they're looking at it from an intellectual point of view a little bit. So what I would try to do is I would have um, just total blank slates. I, I never told my wife about anything we ever shot because I wanted her to see it. Um, her to be the first person that I would show a complete episode to to get her reaction to it. That was very helpful. Um, I could tell if something was going on too long or if something wasn't working or if something there was something in there that was creating a block where she couldn't enjoy it for some reason. Um, and a lot of times for like the uh, the early Between Two Ferns episodes or the Michael Bolton special that we just did, I would show them to an audience at the UCB Theater. And that's the absolute best because the Michael Bolton thing, Akiva and I were were really at the point where we were like, we think this is good and this would be our cut. Um, let's show it to an audience and see what they think. And it's so instructive watching it with an audience because we were like oh holy shit we need to cut like entire verses out of songs we need to cut sketches out of this you know because there's a certain point where an audience freezes and they're not laughing at something they're just kind of watching it and you're like oh holy shit this um you're 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 not ahead of your audience in a way Comedy Bang Bang, I was never really able to do that other than with my wife and maybe a couple other people. Um, If I had had a place to show it to a group of people every week, I think they could have gotten even more tight, you know. But I knew the show enough where I was like, I think I can tell that this is good. (laughs) But there would be tricky sketches that I would show to a lot of different people and be like, is this good? Is Mm -hmm. this is this working? Is this too long? You know, the more you can do that, the better. It's funny because, uh, like, the first two seasons of Mr. Show, they, like, pretty much did the, like, staged versions and then, like, adapted them for the show. Yeah. So they got them, like, tight by doing that. And it's so weird that it's, like, not a thing that happens really anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, the f- seasons three and four, they they tried to do it. But what, what we would do is, and even with the Netflix show they did it there too they would do they would do a live show but they would adapt something they wrote for the show into a live show instead of vice versa so the first couple of years of mr show was like all stuff they were doing on stage that they then adapted to the screen the seasons three and four we would write these sketches and they go okay we we really should try these out in front of an audience and but at that point you're in production and you're 
kind of on a runaway train, and so there's only minor things you can do. You, you, it, we didn't really have the luxury to be like, like Date with the Queen is a great example of that, where we're like, ah, that didn't really go well with the audience. Okay, well, we have to fix it because it's in the show. <laughs> We've already filmed the links, and, you know, and so you're, you're sort of stuck in that respect. Um, but, yeah, more shows could do it. Comedy Bang Bang, we never... Could there there were some sketches that were adapted from live sketches that um, birthday boy sketches or uh, Neil Campbell sketches Paul Russ sketches there were there were definitely a lot of stuff that was tried out on stage especially in season two of Comedy Bang Bang before the birthday boys had their own show I think those guys were like not even thinking they would ever have a TV show so they were more able to. Um, give Comedy Bang Bang sketches that they probably wish they had <laughs> held back for their own show. Um, stuff like the being able to see through Tortilla. Oh, right, yeah. Um, and Neil's um, Temptations musical was something that uh, they had done on stage. And um, he and Paul had a lot of... I think I feel like Jack Blade was something that Blade. Paul was doing on stage a lot. Um, and then Character Guests um, was... There were a lot of those that were done on stage before as like, you know, in stand-up shows and stuff like that. Uh, after Mr. Show, you worked on the, the movie spinoff. Yeah. Uh, what was that process like? That was the the last few days of Mr. Show. Bob was saying how fun it was um, in the fourth season. He was really proud of the fourth season. He really liked the team. And um, they got this deal with New Line to do... Um, Run Ronnie Run or the Ronnie Dobbs movie. That's all we knew, and so he asked all of us if we would um, write the movie. And there were certain people who didn't want to be a part of it because they'd had enough um, at that point, um, or they wanted to try new things. Um, so it ended up being Brian Posehn, um, B.J. Porter, myself, and Bob and David. Um, and it was hyped to us as we're going to do it really quick. Um, it's going to be really easy, really fun. Um, it's this amount of money, which was not a lot of money, but for something really quick, it was going to be great. Um, and that was how it was sold to us. And then we started and we did, we actually did three days, um, with, I think it was maybe the four of us without Bob cause Bob was filming something and we did three days of writing where we got so much done. Um, and it was all about, I remember, Ronnie Dobbs. Uh, it culminated in England with him fighting the Loch Ness Monster. And the last scene was him having sex with the Queen in a real <laughs> okay. Cinemax-style sex scene. Yeah. And we also wrote the... Uh, the opening scene of the uh, Let's Go to the Lobby parody uh, that ended up being in the movie. I think that's the only thing from those three days that ended up being in the movie. Um, and it was – we were doing a Mr. Show style, which those guys, you know, as much – as long as we would take talking about something, you were supposed to write something really quick um, because comedy should be written really super quick and um, you shouldn't take too much time with it. And if you labor over it, you – it's the law of diminishing returns in a way, and you start feeling protective of how good it is, and you, you're afraid to take criticism. But if you write something really quick, someone can go, "Hey, this is kind of boring." In the middle, mm -hmm. you go, "Yeah, okay." Yeah, like you don't give a sh you, you know, you don't care mm -hmm. if someone criticizes you if you've written something in an hour. You know? Right, right. Is this something you like still do today? Yeah. So 
Um, so we wrote a ton in those three days, and it was so funny. And then Bob got back, and somehow, and and honestly, this very well could have been true. Um, meaning, I don't mean it's a lie, but I mean, I I think. Bob probably knew something that we didn't know or um, knew that the movie wasn't going to get made if it was just crazy and fun in the, right, in the okay. Mr. Show way that we thought it was was going to be. But he said, you know what? This movie needs to have um, a grounded center and an arc with a character that cares about something. And it he was likening it to Happy Gilmore. He was like, this needs to be like Happy Gilmore. Otherwise, I don't think it's going to get made. And none of us really had that much experience writing um, movie arcs. Like, I know them pretty well nowadays. But at the time, I'd written one movie on spec, and it was a, it was a parody of an action movie. So I was kind of able oh, to wow, okay. I was able to kind of draw from that right. structure in a way, which was easy for me. But that led us to a year-long, I think, writing process where I was going broke and we weren't getting paid all that much and um, constant just fights about, you know, where the movie was supposed to be. We wanted to do all these really cool kind of sketches where the narrative would stop and you'd go follow a character and do these interesting sketches um one was really funny brian possein i think wrote it about a 50s diner in the 1930s um and it was it was yeah. their approximation of what would the future would probably be like right, that's funny. you know so um that was really funny and uh we quickly figured out that for the movie we were trying to write, none of those were going to work. The only one that ended up making slightly in was um, the uh, uh, the Scott Thompson. Um, it's not gay mafia, but um, there's a, there's a sketch in the middle of that where we're able to cut away for like a minute, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and we were like, oh wow, the narrative is not working if you're gone for five minutes, you know. So it just turned into. And then none of us had any interest in writing the real version of Ronnie Dobbs of, like, him caring about stuff. I think nowadays I could probably write the movie that Bob was thinking of in a funny way because we did it on Comedy Bang Bang all the time. There were actual emotional stakes, but there, but it was funny while doing it. But at the time we were like, I don't know how to write. Bob kept talking about the Adam Sandler and how much he loved his grandma in Happy Gilmore. <laughs> And none of us had any interest in that, you know. And uh, it just really – we finally were able to uh, to get a script that got – was able to get made. And they, they paid for it. But none of us, I think, liked the script all that much. Um, and then to top it all off, even though that movie had a high budget, um, I've heard from – people since that a lot of that budget went missing somewhere but oh, um even even though it had a relatively high budget for and a high budget even now for a movie i think it was eight million dollars or something or mm -hmm. seven and a half um they were never able to like improv during scenes 
the the also the way it was shot honestly was so complicated with all these like crazily complicated shots for no reason that when it came down to just doing the bread and butter of what the movie should be is like Bob and David on screen together fucking around they were able able to do like two takes and not improv and they'd be like and also Bob and David are trying to like keep it together and trying to produce this movie um and they're not in a comedic place where they can fuck around mm-hmm. and and then they're having fights with the director and he's not making it seem like fun you know it just that movie really is leaves a bad taste in my mouth anytime i even see scenes from it um i just start to get into these kind of like distasteful uh, emotions and memories for it, and, and then the post process has been documented about it. But it's 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 not something I think any of us are proud of or feel like is a Mister Show movie. Did you like learn anything from that experience? I mean, yeah, I definitely learned. Uh, I, I think the biggest thing that I learned is there's a really precarious balance when you shoot comedy of trying to make it look good and try and getting out of the way. Um, you know, you, you take a look at modern comedies right now and there's the propensity to do sort of the let's set up two cameras and just have people improv and, and, um, where they're sitting in, in one place and then they're just improving. And those scenes, when you leave too much of it in can get really tiresome, but they added, when they first were coming around, they added such a spark to comedy movies because comedy movies had just been these like scripted things where no one was able to fuck around all that much in scenes. And suddenly people are improvising in movies and there's a certain feel to that, which is really great. But when you are shooting something very cinematically, um, you have to pick and choose your moments in a comedy to do that. Todd Phillips um, does it a little bit. Uh, with the Hangover movies, but then some of his other movies, you know, they look like real movies and they, they're they shot like real movies. Um, but, you know, then he has Zach in there who's able to improv really well. So it, the balance is right. But mm-hmm. when you tip too far into the, this is going to look good because it's a movie. Right. And you're not leaving room for the comedy. That's where it really starts to be like, oh, you've gone too far up your mm-hmm. your own butthole. What was that uh, action parody uh, spec script like? That was it's really good. I mean, it it was something that my partner and I wrote um, before Mr. Show. Uh, Bob really liked it and said that he wanted to direct it and um, do a rewrite with us. So over a period of years, we wrote a lot of versions of it, and various people were attached to be in it. Oh, wow. Um, we had read-throughs with certain people. Uh, Jack Black read the lead for a for uh, one read-through. Um, Tom Green before he made uh, Freddy Got Fingered. He was he was considering making that his first movie. Um, Jamie Kennedy read it at one point, um, and then. And we wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And we have a really pretty good final version of it um, that I think it was um, – I think Bill Hader was going to play the villain and Rain Wilson was going to be the lead. Oh. And um, we uh, – MTV Films greenlit it and uh, then – 
pretty soon after that, it went up the chain at Paramount to Brad Gray, and he said, "Oh no, you're not making this," and it was it stalled as soon as it got greenlit, um, and then Rain had to go do the drummer or the rocker um, instead because he had to make a movie that year because, you know, he was getting offered movies because of The Office. And it all just kind of fell apart. But, you know, pretty much every every comedy star that would come around, I would suggest it to my manager at the time and be like, what about Owen Wilson? Not a movie star. What about Will Ferrell? Not a movie star. Um, There were so many people who were not movie stars at the time that I was like, these people are super funny. Um, I, I still think it's really funny. It's a great idea. Uh, really funny script. I, I, I still would uh, love to see it get made at some point. Did maybe, you ever, maybe I'll do it. <laughs> did you I ever, mean, direct it. Did you ever hear why he said no? No. I don't know. It was oh, probably wow. probably too expensive or yeah. too crazy or something. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really funny script. It's not a normal... Uh, like, it's not the rocker. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not a straightforward movie. It's a really funny uh, action. It's not even a parody necessarily, but it's a it's like a really funny action movie mm-hmm. with crazy scenes. Oh, wow. Uh, people probably don't know that you've written, like, a lot of movies. You've done a lot of movie writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how'd you... I guess you're, you're on Shark Tales, or Shark, uh, Shark Tale. Shark Tale, yeah. Yeah. And you were like a sequel before the original came out, is that right? Mm, while it was while, it was, while re- it was coming out, I I was hired to write the sequel. The movie The Movie Shark Tale was a year out from coming out. They had had success with like Shrek 2 and and sequels to some of their earlier movies, so they hedging their bets, they wanted to get a jump on it, so they brought um me and my partner into um, write the sequel as they were finishing Shark Tale 1. And then since it was a year out, um, those movies are always a mess um, while right. they're making them. And and because of the process, not because a movie has to be a mess, but, but from what I learned, animated movies are um, – the process that they make them is not um, very conducive to story. They, they have animators board out scenes – that are not written, and then you're supposed to incorporate those scenes into your script, and they often don't make any sense. Does um, even like Pixar do that? Yeah, That's apparently, crazy. like the classics, Toy Story two. They were telling me that that was a crazy mess before, like a year before it came out. Wow. Um, anytime I watch one of these computer animated movies, I can see what's happening a lot of times. Yeah, having been in the trenches for four years, I also wor- worked on Puss in Boots. Um, I, and I, I was going to say I worked on Shark Tale 1 because they were a year out and it was a mess and they needed help. So instead, I just worked on that while writing Shark Tale 2. But um, I can see the process a lot of times. Anytime you watch one of those computer anime movies, it'll be like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They boarded that out. That's purely just to be in the trailer. They're stitching together these scenes that and these disparate elements Mm -hmm. just because they either an animator worked on them or they pitched a character to an actor three years before the movie came out and the character doesn't belong in that movie anymore, but they can't fire the actor. (laughs) That happened a lot. Um, Just being in the process. I learned so much in it. Being in the process of like pitching a movie to an actor. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and showing them all of the conceptual art and taking them through their character arc uh, 
we would do that with actors. We would do that with musicians to be on the soundtrack. Oh, wow. I had a crazy couple of days where, like, we pitched it to Janet Jackson and Lil Kim and Method Man and Red Man and all these people. And that's, like, mostly up to you doing that? No, that would be um, the director, Rob Letterman, huh. or the co-director. Uh, he would take charge on that, and okay. he was the guy that, that we were writing the sequel with, and mm-hmm. he's still my buddy. So I would be there to, like— help out and watch and and you know add support you know but um it was a it was a fascinating process to watch but but it is something where much in the same way of like if you if you're a cop and you know too much about actual procedural of like mm-hmm. how to be a cop you can't really watch cop shows without kind of going like oh or or, or a judge watching court shows is going god they would never allow that mm-hmm. um that's that's how i watch computer anime movies a lot now <laughs> of saying like oh okay i understand what happened here um even pixar movies like some like up for instance is crazy wow when you really think yeah. about it and I, I and all i can see when i watch up beautiful first 20 minutes and they thought of that separately and then Mm -hmm. said how do we make a movie out of this and then crazy elements got put in there from like probably other movies and um and stuff Mm -hmm. an animator would pitch that a director would go oh okay let's try it you know the dog talking with his voice box and stuff like that anyway so Mm -hmm. yeah would you ever want to write movies again um yeah uh i think so i mean it's it's a very lonely uh, job in a way, and I'm sort of enjoying producing a little more than the actual sitting down and actually writing is just a drag in yeah. a way. You know what I mean? Uh, especially when you have a ton going on and a, a bunch of projects, finding the time to to actually do it is really tough. I mean, the best thing, like sometimes taking a week off and going out of town and then just sitting down and writing that whole week is really good. But, you know, when I'm here, I have podcasts I have to do. I have shows I have to produce, you know, and and all sorts of other random stuff that pops up during the week. So it's very hard to find the time. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I it's a certain skill that I developed and got relatively good at that I'd mm-hmm. like to, to do in the future. Uh, so Bang Bang... You uh, you do the interstitials for IFC, and it's kind of like an audition a little bit, right? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. And then so they're interested in doing a show. When they when they approach you with that, like, do you know uh, what you want to do? Um, Dan Pasternak, who uh, had produced a show with me um, before he went to IFC. Um, he was a big fan of the podcast, and so he had me do those interstitials to prove that, like, I was good on camera. Um, and he pretty much just said, we're thinking of doing a show uh, based on Comedy Bang Bang. Um, what do you want to do with it? And I, I thought it was going to be more of a um, four-day-a-week or five-day-a-week strip show. So I sort of talked about it that way, and he said, oh, no, 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 we don't have that kind of money. <laughs> um, we, you have to do it once a week. And only. And I said, how many are you going to buy? And he said, well, we've never bought more than six of anything in a season. He goes, maybe we would do ten, depending on what the budget is. So when I heard that, I mean, that automatically – realign my expectations of what to do with the show there because I think when you're doing like I was saying before when you're doing something at uh, a little more regularly 
you can relax a little more into it and have it be slightly more ephemeral. But when you're making six episodes of something, like, you want them to be fucking great, mm-hmm. you know? And I knew people weren't going to watch it when it was on the air. I wanted people to be watching it years and years down the line. So that that was really, to me, uh, it was like, okay, how do you take what works about the podcast? And the podcast is like, hey, we do it every week. Whatever happens that week happens. And, you know, please be happy with it. But it's coming right around the corner. (laughs) There's 500 episodes at this point. You know, not all of them are going to be good. You want every episode to be good when you're doing so few of them. So it really became like me and the writers and the director um, taking what we thought worked about the podcast and saying, well, let's try this with it. Um, the fake name part of it that that would pop up, that was our director, Ben Berman. He sat in on a recording of a podcast once, and I was doing this thing where I was um, – I think Natasha Legero maybe had called me Hot Saucerman or something, and, <laughs> and I was introducing myself as that. And he was like, oh, that's really funny. What if you just called yourself something new every – uh, or called yourself your name and we had a Chiron underneath you that was different every time. And I was like, okay, sure. You know, and we tried it and it became like this thing that has stuck really well, you know. But it was a lot like that. It was just we had a lot of ideas that we ended up never using. Um, we shot a lot of stuff. We shot some stuff that never got in, like uh, introduc- introductory stuff a lot. Um, but we thought we were going to shoot – a 45-minute pilot and get it down to 25, you know, by cutting pieces out of it. And then we ended up keeping all of it in and making everything really fast-paced. Wow. Um, So that pilot is really... I'm very proud of the pilot, and it, it, um, it was probably the best pilot that I had made at that point. And, um, but it really was trial and error, of trying to find the format that would work. And then even in the first season, we're like tinkering with the format. And then in between one and two, the network gave us some notes that we had to change the format of the show based on how all of their shows were changing the format of the show by what they thought worked for them. So we tinkered with it there. And I would say in the in season two, we figured out kind of what works, what didn't work. Um, we used to have three guests on the couch, and the network said, by guest three, people don't care anymore, only mm-hmm. have two. Um, so late season two, we were like, oh, okay, we think this is the format. We can play off this format, but we think this is it. And then seasons three, four, and five, the majority of the episodes are all mm-hmm. like within that format. Uh, when you were high riders for the show, what were you looking for? I was working with, um, you know, this group of people at the time, Neil and Paul and the Birthday Boys guys. So that was really it. I wasn't, like, going mm. out and doing a search or anything like that. I just kind of asked those guys, hey, do you want to work? I'd, I'd worked with Neil and Paul on stuff like a Moral Oral episode and stuff for a an abandoned Onion movie. Um, so I knew I wanted to work with those guys and, um, they love the birthday boys and I'd been sort of working with them a little bit. So it it really was just them by, by season four, the birthday boys all had to leave for the first half of that season. Um, so that's when we did a search for people and we took, I think Neil Campbell read 200 packets or something like that. Wow. Um, so... 
you know, you're looking for you're looking for a voice um, that's clear, and you're looking and selfishly you're looking for sketches like, oh, I, I want to do this sketch. I definitely mm-hmm. want to include this. Um, that's that's really what you're looking for, and you're looking for someone who can work in different styles. That mm-hmm. when we were asking for packets, it was like write up a fake character. Uh, for us, write a sketch that's a TV show parody, and then also write you know questions that I would ask um, Will Ferrell or whoever mm-hmm. I think was maybe the person that we said. So you're looking for someone who is not going to you know the worst would be if you hired someone who like has a couple of really good sketches, but they're not good at anything else. Right, right. You know that's where you're like, oh man, we made a wrong choice there. But mm-hmm. you're looking for sort of someone who can do 360 stuff. Mm-hmm. I think uh, something I really like about Bang Bang is that you wouldn't think, but it has so much heart. And this is like, you really nail like the emotional stuff. Was that like an important thing for you going in? I think that, you know, just in storytelling in general, you, and this is something that you learn in movie writing, um, like plot-based storytelling is sort of a dead end in a way. And this is what I'm producing now. This is something that I we constantly have conversations about. You'll get mainly comedy writers like to write plot-based things. And they like to be like the spaceship comes down and does this and 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 you'll go, "Well, why why does the character care?" And they'll go, "Well, obviously they don't want the earth to be blown up." <laughs> You go, well, okay, yeah, everyone, you know, basic human survival, whatever. Or they want a good job. That, that's something. Like, he wants the job because, like, everyone wants a good job. <laughs> yeah. That's not enough, you know? Like, you you have to have characters that care about something. And so you're always looking to add the personal the, – the cliche of this time it's personal is really, mm-hmm. like, what all emotional-based storytelling is all about mm-hmm. is, like, well, why does this person give a shit? They usually in an action movie they'll usually add a kid. You know what I mean? He doesn't want the earth to be blown up, not because of himself, but because <laughs> he wants to make sure his kid can survive and go on, you know, and raise kids themselves or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, a lot of times it's like, uh why is it personal to them? Why what happened in their past that they have to prove something or you know, like it, it's and you're also dealing with thematic elements a lot of times in in storytelling is like um I read a quote the other day about um Mad Men um I was reading this oral history of Mad Men and they were talking about like they made the pilot <clears throat> and one of the actors said okay well we feel like probably what we thought was going to happen was every episode Don Draper takes on an advertising challenge and figures out how to convince the client that um that that they should keep on hiring him. And what we didn't know was that Matthew Weiner instead wanted to deconstruct the American family. And, right. um, and that is what you're looking for when you're trying to write narrative-based stuff is what are you trying to say and why does it matter to the characters just as much as like, Oh, this is a funny parody of the X Men. <laughs> yeah. So, um, knowing that, like, 
we that that just is kind of a natural thing when when we're making the show but it was stuff that Neil and I would constantly talk about is like why do I why does my character or why does Reggie or Al or Kid Cudi why do we care about what's happening but more than that what are we trying to say about stuff what are we trying to say that that was really something you know regardless of how funny something is is like what are we trying to why are we talking about this what are we trying to say and so so in comedy those things are are very important um and so heart just kind of comes along with that and i was very lucky to have reggie there and have a relationship that people cared about and once we started getting people going like oh wow i love you guys together you know we really leaned into that and 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 it was great so um but but you can't just have a show where a bunch of random shit is happening and because no one's going to give a shit right being the uh, the star of the show how much can you um be involved in the writers room probably much less than you'd like uh i was very involved in the first couple of seasons and then um yeah, I mean, at a certain point, season three, four, and five, it was a major full-time job um, where I had to be on set all day. Um, yeah, so it was really tough. I mean, I was very lucky to have uh, not only Neil steering the ship, but the great writers that we had who churned out so much material. I mean, Bang Bang was a kind of bottomless well of we needed stuff we needed stuff we need stuff for the we need questions i would i would pick 20 percent of the questions that were written to use Mm -hmm. during the improv interview you know i mean we just needed so much stuff so in the later seasons it really was me i would have pretty much two jobs one people would pitch me the ideas before they were written of the major story of each episode. And I would say, I, I, I would just give notes. What are we trying to say? Here's a, here's a, what I think our execution of it would be, how it would be better. Um, and then read throughs of the material once Neil had taken it through a couple of drafts enough to the point where they were like, we think this is really good or we don't know what else we can do with this. Um, and then then I would take them through how to get better. And then I guess my third job is I, I did the final draft of every episode. Um, sometimes not a lot to be done, just purely like I'd add a couple of jokes, stitch it together or whatever. And sometimes it would be like a major rewrite that I would do. But um, but those were those were the three things that I would be able to do in the later seasons. And so after Bang Bang, you got uh, producing it much more. How much would you be involved, like, in the writer's room with those shows? Um, It depends on the show, what Mm -hmm. season it's in. Um, Bajillion Dollar Properties, for instance, I think I went in early in the writing and took a listen to what they had and then said, hey, I think the show could be maybe more effective if you structured it like this. Mm. Um, and then in the first season, I definitely was going, I went through every script and and punched it up. Then second season, I maybe came in and listened to all of their ideas and, and pitched on them and said it's maybe better for this way. And then third season, a little bit less. And then fourth season, I don't think I was involved at all. Um, Take My Wife was a, was a little different in the sense of um, 
we were hired as the production company on that originally, mm-hmm. um, not as producers technically. So the first season I was doing Bang Bang, the last season of Bang Bang. And so I was not that involved with Take My Wife first season. And then mm-hmm. the second season, um, they wanted me involved a little more and I had more time. So I definitely was like giving them way more notes with that. Um, in pitching stuff, I'm very involved. Uh, we're very hands-on um, when it comes to producing. We're not like producers who are like, we'll take a, an hour meeting and then go out with something and just trying to sell it on our name or whatever mm-hmm. because we can't sell anything like that. Like, we want to make it really good and we'll, we'll, we work a lot with people. Uh, so you've had your own show. You're producing now. What would you like to be doing next? Um, I'm getting more into directing. It's not something that oh, I think okay. that I that I really felt like I could do during Bang Bang because um, I just thought it was too much. Like that show was so hard to do that adding a level of me also, even though by the end I knew where all the cameras were supposed to be at all times, just having to check all of that right. was just too much. So. And we had great directors for that who had so many, you know, better ideas than I think I had. Um, but, yeah, I'm doing that more. Um, I did the Bolton special, co-directed that with Akiva um, and some other stuff that I've been – I do the Fern stuff, you know. So I, I'm looking to get a little more into that and see how enjoyable that mm-hmm. is. And then, may, you know, maybe have another show down the line somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I wrap up every episode by uh, pitching a sketch mm-hmm. <laughs> or pitching some idea. This is a sketch, so I'll, I'll make this quick. Uh, so this is a sketch idea. It's a funeral, okay. uh, and the sister is like uh, running the. I don't know how it works. Like running the eulogy, she's like asking people to come up. Right. And so the first person comes up and he tells a story about how uh, uh, this guy. When Trump was elected, he said he was going to dig a hole to China, and then he like posted a picture of him digging a hole. That's just the kind this of guy, the guy who died. Yeah, he's talk, talking about the guy who died. Yeah, okay. and everyone's like, oh, so "That's like kind of a, a nice story, I guess." Uh, and then the next guy comes up, and he's like, "Oh yeah, the hole. Uh, I saw him hanging around that hole quite a bit uh, during his last couple uh, weeks. I don't know what was going on there." But then he tells like a normal story. Then the third guy comes up, and he's like. Uh, yeah, reading the room, it seems like people want to talk about the hole. Uh, I, I saw him, and I, I actually saw him uh, jerking off in the hole. I shouldn't have said that, obviously, because, but, you know, I don't think people would want to know. And then it comes out that he, uh, was, like, fucking the hole. And so, yeah. <laughs> That's most of the idea there. Right. Okay. Um. And you want me to... Just, yeah, what do you think of that idea? <laughs> Well, first of all, the fucking the whole thing is like maybe too reminiscent of Andy Daly and his uh, cowboy. Uh, oh, who I didn't fucks even think holes. about that. So, but what? So, so what I would do is I would like strip it down to your main first thought, right? Yeah. So your main first thought, because maybe your execution isn't exactly there. I, I would also say I don't know about the the the. Um, funeral setting of it is like not very active because your main participant is dead your right, main guy right. who's, who has a lot of skin in the game is dead uh-huh. who's gonna add a lot of the drama and emotion to the sketch mm-hmm. so what i would do then is like go okay so maybe if this if this execution isn't exactly it what do you have you have like the idea of people 
who are saying, I'm going to move to Canada if Trump is elected or I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, make these massive life changes right. if Trump is elected. I'm going to move to France or whatever. You have two things. You have one, people usually chicken out. Mm-hmm. So you have a good opportunity for a main character there to be like the person who's like, fuck it. No, I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And then two, you have a slightly exaggerated way of them getting away, digging a hole through the center of the earth. That's a lot of fertile ground, pardon the pun, <laughs> right there. Um, there are also other ways to get out if if the hole, the hole through the center of the earth wasn't big enough, although there's a lot of funny things you could do with it. Um, basically, what you're looking at is an exaggeration of the people saying they're going to move away. So, like, what's the ultimate yeah. way you can take that? So there's a lot of funny stuff there. So if, if if we were working on it, I would then say I would pitch around and we would talk about, like, funny ways to get out of the country. Mm-hmm. But then you also have a character who's, like, I would put him mid-doing it or at a goodbye party for him when he's just right. about to okay. go. Like, yeah. you have a character there who's, like, very emotionally invested in it. Mm-hmm. So why kill that person off? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, cool. Cool. Uh, anything you want to plug? Uh, Comedy Bang Bang, the podcast every week. Mm -hmm. That's the end. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. This has been a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardWalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.